Good afternoon. And uh, we've been following a series through the summer, although we sort of skipped about in August, did a few other things. But back in uh, end of May or beginning of June, we started this series on the parables of Jesus. So uh, we end that today. And um, one more time, Jonathan next week will come with a new series uh, on Paul and mission. But just for one more time then, are you seated comfortably? Then we'll begin. There are not many themes, not many ideas that, are, that run throughout Scripture and actually that you find in almost every book of the Bible, more or less every single book. There are not that many, but there are a few. And if you were to look, you would find, um, for example, the idea of worshipping one God. Whenever Israel went astray, God always brought them back. But when they worshipped other gods, that was the limit of what he could stand. Worshipping one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Or the so-called Shema prayer of the Jews is, the prayer, is our prayer as well today. That runs through every book of the Bible. God's love for his people. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You belong to me. Um, as I've loved, uh, love one another, as I've loved you, says Jesus. Uh, God is love, says John, in, uh, John for, for John. And the love of God and God's love is, is definitely an idea that repeats across probably every single book of the Bible, as is the concept of being forgiven uh, and forgiving others. But there are one or two others as well, one or two other ideas that you will find in more or less every single book of the Bible. Uh, not many, but here is one, I believe. And it's this, this idea of the least of these, the least of these. What does that mean? Um, But this concept, which we'll go into today, the least of these, is in, I believe, every book of the Bible. Um, I hope you can read the slides today, by the way. I've tried to make the fonts a bit bigger, but as long as I can read them, if I can't, then we're in trouble, but I think I can. So let's look at the passage, and um, I will have to read this to you. So it's from, if you've got a Bible with you on your phone or an actual real Bible, then uh, do open it. Matthew 25 from verse 31, a well-known passage, uh, which we've certainly read in part uh, at Lynn Baptist Church before. I'm not sure we've had a sermon on, on just on this passage. So this is Jesus. This is actually um, almost the last teaching of Jesus on this earth. You go to Matthew 26 and we're in Gethsemane. We're at the foot of the cross. This is almost the last anecdote, the last story that Jesus brings us in his earthly life. And let's see what he had to say. So he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, he's talking about the end times, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, in need of clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, 
brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was in need of clothes. You did not clothe me. I was ill and I was in prison. You did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So Lord, as we come to this passage today, this difficult passage, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And I pray, Lord, that those here today who have ears, let them hear. Amen. Sarah just pointed out to me on the way in, actually, that if you, after the service, if you haven't seen it already, come and look at this window here, which is all about the sheep and the goats. And uh, it actually says up there, I can read it, as you did for the least of these, you did unto me. And there's images of someone visiting somebody in prison, somebody feeding somebody, somebody clothing somebody. Uh, it's a simple, simple window, but pictorially, it's, it's this passage. Have a look at it. We will continue. So, uh, one of, uh, on the face of it, the idea in this passage, passage seems blindingly obvious, doesn't it? Isn't it, we already know this, don't we? Isn't it just about uh, the, this idea of the least of these? Isn't it just about seeking the good of the poor, the vulnerable? Isn't it about offering hospitality? Yes, it is. But we're going to lift the lid on it and on that passage in particular. So, God seems really concerned about this. To the point, to the extent that he actually gauges, somehow measures his people on how, they have, how well they've done this. Not determines their salvation, but somehow gauges them, measures them on how well they've done this. That's how bothered he seems to be in this passage. And in fact, uh, the Bible, if you look through the Bible, the other thing that's in the Bible is this idea of, uh, the, of, of the poor, of the vulnerable, of the least of these. So laborers, peasant farmers, slaves, we've already had parables on some of these. Remember we had the parable in July, I think, of the laborers in the vineyard. Some of them came at 6 a.m. in the morning, some at 9, and some came at 5 p.m. They're just day laborers, zero hours contracts. That was about this kind of labor. Or peasant farmers, we had the parable at the start of this, on the farmer went out sowing seeds. So these are common ideas, but they're real people in Jesus' day who were often vulnerable, had no guaranteed means of in, in, income. The Bible says a lot about refugees. People are always on the move in the Bible, often to places they don't know where they're going. Jesus himself was a refugee at the age of two, probably the age of two. We know he went to Egypt. It wasn't their choice to go. They had to flee to Egypt. And the marginalized. So it's, it's very much about the poor and the vulnerable, but also the marginalized, who may, who may have some money, but somehow they're still put on the margins by society. So examples could be the tax collectors, like Matthew. He was marginalized and cast out. Or um, in Mark chapter 5, 
the woman who has a discharge of blood. She's cast out. She's marginalized. She's not one of the rest. She's not acceptable. And it's not easy for us to relate to this. Um, we, are, we, we usually are not in that position. We are not vulnerable. We do have resources, uh, both us and our immediate ancestors, our parents, we're not in that state of poverty, most of our cases. So it's not an easy thing for us to relate to. But the Bible has it on every other page. In fact, let's just look at how very briefly, how often the Bible repeats this idea and how many voices the Bible uses to repeat this idea. So uh, this idea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not that interested in, in all the things you're bringing to me, whether it's gifts or worship. I'm looking for how you deal with other people. That's the line in Hosea 6, in other parts of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes it at least twice. In Matthew chapter 9, if you look at um, Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible in The Message, I love that. Jesus says, go figure this out. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and work it out. Why are you bringing all these things? I want you to look after the people who need looking after. Um, the book of Deuteronomy. And again, across the Old Testament law, this idea of the stranger, welcoming the stranger. The Lord defends the rights of orphans and widows. He cares for foreigners. He gives them food and clothing. And the, uh, the people of the Old Testament were told to look after strangers, often with the second part of that sentence being, because you once were a stranger. You also were a stranger, and you may be again. Or if you look at uh, this very, very famous verse in Micah chapter 6, again, where Micah's uh, really tormented by this, this, this false worship that the people are engaged in, and he says in Micah chapter 6, what, the Lord, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to act justly, to be bothered about justice and the people who don't have justice in this world, to love mercy, to be showing mercy to those who need it, and to always to walk humbly. And Isaiah repeats this again, the multitude, of, the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, what are they to me? If you're not doing the right things, what are they to me? What do I care about the number of times you come to church if you don't behave as my people? And then it continues very much in the New Testament. So here's one from Paul, Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Galatians is Paul's defense. He's under attack because he's, he's bringing together Jews and Gentiles. And he's referring back to a discussion with the disciples that they have in Acts 15, the first council of the church ever in Jerusalem. And Paul's recounting this. This is what they said. This is what we agreed. This is what they said I could do. All they asked of me was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do anyway. Or Jesus. We've already had one quote from Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is Jesus railing against the religious people of his day. That's the passage where he calls them all kinds of names. Rude names. Awful names. He says you're a brood of vipers, you people. You're like whitewashed tombs, all nice and shiny on the outside, but inside full of dead men's corpses. That's what you're like. And Jesus says to them, 
you think it's great giving away your um, your 10%. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the former without neglecting the latter. It's not a choice, says Jesus, that you either read your Bible and go to church or you look after people who need looking after. You should have done the former without neglecting the latter. So we see it is written across Scripture. In fact, this was the the title of an essay we were asked to write, 3,000 words on that topic a few years ago. Is the Bible biased towards the poor? Is the Bible actually biased? Does God prefer, in some ways, the poor? If you ask that question in developing countries, it's blindingly obvious. Of course he does. Of course he does. If you ask it in wealthy countries, people are never quite sure because we're a little bit uncertain about that. It's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. God does want our worship. Of course he does. God delights in our worship. The Bible also says that. But not instead of our actions. Not instead of what we do. The theological term for believing right things is orthodoxy. Orthodox. We're used to that phrase. But there's also a a, a theological term for doing the right things. Orthopraxy. And we need both of those, those. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right beliefs, but right acts as well. So let's look at this, one of these five, the last, almost, almost the last teaching of Jesus, this sheep and the goats, and just lift the lid on it a little bit more. Why does he use the, the anecdote, the analogy of sheep and goats? People understood it. Uh, sheep and goats, again, in the, as we see with all parables, they're based on everyday situations. Parable is where we get the word parallel, things thrown alongside life. Alongside life. So people you were used to sheep and goats. Sheep actually were worth more than goats. Sheep were able to uh, withstand the cold as well. Goats were not. So at the end of the day, the sheep and the goats, who look very similar, if you look at that picture, which is of sheep and goats, the sheep and the goats have to be separated. The goats have to be kept together, brought in. The sheep are okay on the hillside. So it was a common uh, act that was done every day. And actually... The sheep and the goats look very similar from the outside. But Jesus says from the inside, there's a difference. And the inside, their hearts are different. Our actions, says this passage, have consequences. Our actions, what we do in this life, yes, what we believe, but what we do in this life, even as Christians, there is some kind of consequence to that. There is some kind of consequence. It's not the only passage of the Bible that talks about this. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about our works being tested, the works of Christians being tested. Um, the parable of the talents that we had earlier this year. Um, servants are given different amounts of, uh, of, um, of skills, of, of abilities, of money, of time. And then Jesus comes and says, what did you do with it? And one person says, well, I didn't do anything with it. And, and, and it receives some kind of forfeit. So it's not, a, it's not an idea that is unique to this, this passage. This idea that our actions, even as consequences, have some kind of eternal consequence. They bring us nearer or further from God. So what we see when we really look at these passages, and in particular this passage, 
when we look at this passage, is from this passage, God isn't as bothered about, if you read this, going to church every week, reading the Bible or praying, although we need all of those. What it says in this passage is, I'm looking at how you treat other people, the people on the edge, the least of these. I remember a parable, and some people would say this is not a parable, this is just Jesus saying how it is. But parables only usually deal with one topic, and we have to look at all of these together. So other parts of Scripture do talk about worship, about um, being in God's presence, about reading his word. But this one is about how we treat people on the edge, the least of these. But let's just clarify this. Surely we're just saved by our faith. Surely that's enough. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what some evangelicals say. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. Sure, absolutely, 100%. That is the truth. We are saved by our faith. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just end there. Faith, what I believe, and works, what I do, both matter. God is interested in both of those, not just what we believe, but what we do with that. And in fact, our works, our, what we do, our daily living, that's the evidence of faith. That is the evidence that you have faith. It's what you do. And it's also, I would say, the accelerator of faith. I was chatting to someone, a lady, a Christian at Creamfields, four weeks ago. And she was telling me how she was going around lots of different churches trying to find the one that really, really feeds her, where she can really grow, which is great. But I also said, well, what do you actually do? What are you doing for any of these churches? She wasn't not actually doing anything at this point. And, th- and that, that's a hindrance. If we, if we only come to be fed and we're never prepared to give, that will always limit our growth. Works are the evidence of faith. Works are the accelerator of faith. If you really want to grow in faith, step out and see what you can do for God. And uh, I think this is the point of this passage. With the goats, when Jesus deals with them ever so harshly, and they say, we, we didn't see you without food. We didn't see you locked up. I think the point is that from the evidence, there is no faith. There is no, because they didn't do anything. If, if works are the evidence of faith and there are never any works, then perhaps there was never any faith there in the first place. We are saved by faith alone, but it's not just about faith. And isn't it in the, it's in the furnace of real life that our faith is evidenced, that we can see the evidence of faith Or as James says, James is probably the um, most often quoted book on works, on doing things. And in in James chapter 2, James is talking about this and he says, some people say, I have faith. And other people say, oh, but I do works. And James says, that's a false distinction. I will show you by my faith, by my works. I'll show you what I believe by the things I do, by the things I do for others. Show me how anyone can have faith without actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. And there's this quote that's often misquoted from Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, the Reformed churches. 
Martin Luther, who's quoted as saying, we are saved by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. <clears throat> but Martin Luther never said, we are saved by faith alone. He didn't say that. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. You can never have faith in a vacuum where somebody sits just reading the Bible, just praying, but never goes out to do anything. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. So let's uh, just, I thought as we come into the end of this series, there are several, I've already referred to one actually, there are several parables we've covered in this series that are kind of saying very much the same thing. They're all looking at the end times, the end time parables, there's five altogether. And we've talked at least about three of them, the parable of the talents, referred to it earlier, where the servants are the servants of Jesus. Jesus comes back and says, well, what did you do? Not just what did you believe, what did you actually do? And there's a judgment based on that. Uh, Phil Dixon, uh, at the beginning of August, talked about the parable of the ten virgins. Some who had enough oil for the lamps and some who didn't. And that's about readiness. And he, he used this phrase. He says, the Christian life is about this. It's about a long obedience in the same direction. It's about a long obedience in the same direction. What a great way of describing describing what we should be doing. It's the Christian life is faithfulness to a narrative that goes over many years. Sometimes we'll fail. We often will fail. But we get up and it's faithfulness to that story, to that narrative. And then I gave, uh, I guess what was a monologue in August about, of this parable, the badly dressed guest at the wedding feast. And the point of that was, it's not just what you believe, it's what you do that counts. All similar messages, all talking about the end times. But then, what are we really supposed to do? Because aren't we surrounded by need? Aren't we overwhelmed by need? Sometimes I feel like that. That's just a, a, a picture, a recent picture of Syrian refugees coming in, trying to get into Greece. And we've, the news has stopped reporting them, but there are still boats with people coming across the Mediterranean. In fact, even now, as we meet here, there will be refugees trying to cross that sea in very unseaworthy boats, which some of which will, will not make it. What are we supposed to do? We're surrounded by need about charities, refugees, even close to here in Manchester. You don't have to go far to find great need. What are we supposed to do? We don't feel we can deal with it. Often we feel overwhelmed. I do. There's so many needs. And I think our, our brains, our human brains, were not actually really designed to be overwhelmed by this much need coming at us day after day. See, 100 years ago, probably 50 years ago, uh, certainly 100 years ago, if there was a, a disaster somewhere in the world, you might not hear about it for weeks. And then you might read something in the newspaper if you, if you were able to read. You might never hear about it. Today, it's 24-7. 24-7, the news is firing at us all the time, all these needs. The internet is broadcasting to our homes all these needs. And we have breaking news on our smartphones, all these needs. And I don't think we were designed 
really as humans to deal with that level of need. But nevertheless, this is the world we're living in. This is the world that we inhabit now. And I think this parable helps us, it gives us an answer of how to deal with this. Because the parable tells us what we're supposed to do, and I think what we're not supposed to do, what we're not supposed to worry about. See, God doesn't say to these people, well done, because you solved the problem of hunger in the world, or well done, because you actually solved that Syrian refugee crisis or took care of the whole of Yemen where there's an awful civil war going on. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, well done, because you helped the one person who crossed your path. You showed humanity, hospitality, mercy, act justly, love, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. You did that for one person, whoever that person was that crossed our path. We are expected to do that. We can use our voices in issues of justice and injustice, of which there are many. We can use our prayers and, of course, we can use our money as well. Now, I'm going to ask Danny and the band to just come forward again. I'm going to come back in a few minutes with just the end of this sermon and the so what. But as we think about what it is that God asks us to do, it's what we do that counts as well. Let's just um, meditate on that idea as we sing this song quietly and then I'll come back for a few minutes. Be my everything, be my everything, be my everything, be my everything. So Lord, we don't want to be a people, Lord, that compartmentalizes our faith, that just has you as a kind of a mascot for Sundays. Will you show us, Lord, how, we, how to make you the everything of our lives? Amen. And Nicola wanted to share something, just should be on, I think. So this story fits in. story fits in quite, uh, quite well with what Chris has been talking about. A few weeks ago, uh, I was decorating Hannah's bedroom, and there's a, a load of furniture in there, and I really wanted it to go to people who needed it. And I thought, how can I get that to people who need it? And uh, it was just about what Chris was saying about how, what should we do when, when people are in need? How can we help them? And so I decided to... Uh, put on Lim, Love Lim Locals, you may have seen it, uh, and rather than sell the furniture, I, I put uh, this advert on free to a good home, but with a donation to the charity that Nick's raising money for Open Doors. And within about 10 minutes of putting that on, I got a message saying, um, we really want the furniture, but uh, how much is the donation? And I said, it's whatever you can afford. And this uh, guy replied, well, I can't afford anything. So I was completely taken aback because, I mean, if you say a donation, it's a donation, whatever you can afford. So I was quite surprised. And so I said, well, 
um, he said, give me an idea of what you can afford. Um, What do you mean, donation? So I said, well, whatever you can afford, just replied the same again. And then he um, replied, I really can't afford it, but I want the furniture. So I thought, oh, Lord, what shall I do? Is this a scam? Is this somebody just wanting it and then selling it on? And I was really uneasy, and I prayed about it. I felt the Lord said, just wait. So I waited overnight, following morning, prayed again, said, God, what shall I do in this situation? What would you do? Jesus, what would you do? And I felt Jesus said to me, you pay the donation. Give him the furniture, and you pay the donation. I thought, oh, it's a bit weird. So I said to Nick, oh, um somebody's coming to pick up the furniture and I'm going to give you a donation. He said, that's a bit strange. I said, yeah, I know. I said, but I just felt it's what God's told me to do in this instance. And I said, I've just got to be obedient. Anyway, I was still a little bit worried that it was a bit of a scam, but trust God, these people turned up really desperate. They had, um, it was for the daughter. She'd been to the food bank regularly and it was a completely genuine thing. They, uh, yeah, it was very moving, and they took the furniture. Thank you. So let's uh, round this up. What do we mean by the least of these, and what is it that we're meant to do? The least of these are both local and distant, aren't they? We can think of these groups. And in fact, just this week, I don't know if Andy's here, Andy Crow, but... Uh, and he took us to uh, Oasis, where there are people being given food, the drink that they need, the food that they need, a step in life. What a wonderful way of uh, reenacting uh, this, this story of Jesus. Uh, Victoria from Oasis will be coming here in, I think, October the 18th. Or, well, sometime in October or November will be coming to tell us more about Oasis. So there'll be an opportunity to listen to that. And then actually Arthur yesterday was talking to me again and reminded me about his prison work. What a very literal way of taking this parable. Did you visit me in prison? Actually, yeah, I think I might have done. (laughs) And uh, uh, similarly, Arthur will be talking about prison work, and that's the middle of October, isn't it? So again, there'll be a chance to hear about that. But I'm going to tell you about an example that's close to my heart and that I know something about. I'm just going to use this next few minutes just to do that, if that's okay. Meet Simon and Julia Hawthorne. Um, You might not know them. You might not know Simon, but you probably know his brother, Andy Hawthorne, who runs the message. I mean, what those two brothers have done, the difference they've made to this world, is just astonishing, the two of them. But Simon and Julia have been working in India for over 20 years with a group of people called the Dalits, D-A-L-I-T, the Dalits. And I was thinking, if there's anybody who is the very, very least of these in this world, it might be this group of people. Who are the Dalits? Let me just tell you very briefly. This is the uh, Hindu version of where people come from. This is God, this is Brahman, who made people. And uh, the top caste people, priests and teachers, are made from this God's head. The warriors and rulers are made from his breasts. And then from his sort of thighs come the farmers, the traders and the merchants. And then laborers are made from his feet. Interestingly, my father was from this caste, but my mother was from this caste. Let's come back to that in a minute. That's the caste system. And then you've got animals. 
completely outside of that system are a group of people. Today, about 350 million people who are simply cast out. And the idea is God had no space for you, no time for you. You're actually the lowest of the low. That's what you deserve because of what you did in your previous lives. So just put up with it. That's the message to this group of people. And they are brutalized, victimized, left out of society. Not, they only ever have the worst possible jobs, cleaning latrines, basically. Uh, I saw this on the BBC news site. Sadly, it's very common. The Indian Dalit who was killed for getting his food out in front of upper caste men. He just got his food out on the road where there happened to be upper caste men, and that's, that's, why, you get, that's why you'll get killed. Here's a, um, a four-and-a-half-minute video that says a little bit more about the Dalits. I was looking for something. I asked Simon. He didn't have anything. He had a, a video, actually, but it was mainly text, and I thought you might not be able to read the subtitles. It's, it's very American, so I apologize for that, but it does actually say something about who these people are, so hopefully this will work. Welcome to India a land rich in culture and history. It is home to one of every six people of the earth, with a population of one billion. While India's major religion is Hinduism, it is also home to many Muslims, Buddhists, and Christians. It is the Hindu influence that has produced the caste system on which India's culture hinges. This social structure has four very distinct levels and comprises about two-thirds of India's population. The remaining one-third of the population are known as Dalits or untouchables. They number 300 million people, more than the population of the United States. And if considered a nation, the Dalits would be the fifth largest of the world. For more than 3,000 years, the Dalits have been oppressed by the Hindu religion, which created them to serve the caste system. See, the problem is my people. They feel that we are nothing, we are just like animals because God, we have done so wrong, that is why God has made us like that. They have been taught that this way of life is the result of their karma and the unspeakable acts of their previous life. I myself used to believe that God has made me Dalit. My, my condition is now very poor and very bad and very difficult because of I did wrong in my previous life. The Dalits are excluded from the caste system, literally outcasts. Most live on the brink of destitution barely able to feed their families. At the end of their day, they return to a hut in their Dalit colony with no electricity and often miles away from the nearest water supply. They are forbidden to enter places of worship, draw water from public wells, wear shoes in the presence of a caste Hindu, travel public roadways, or if they have money, stay in hotels or eat in public restaurants. So many uh, traditions are there that, that makes a person very poor. And the high caste people, especially Brahmins, they made this all uh, thing so that they may raise money. They have been given the worst jobs. Grave diggers, toilet cleaners, discarders of human and animal wastes, 
and slave workers on the lands of the rich. If there is any income at all, it amounts to less than one dollar per day. Children are taken as a payment for debt, and the women, though untouchable by day, are found to be touchable by night through rape and abuse. I'm praying Allah is going to save all the people and to bring them out of the slavery and poverty and the bondage of this casteism. This prayer and others are stirring fresh winds of freedom to blow throughout India. The Dalit people are in mass turning from this slavery and oppression. They are rejecting Hinduism, which has created and perpetuated their lowly status. Recently, more than 100,000 Dalits came together and renounced Hinduism and are in large numbers turning to other religions including Christianity. I declare I will not die a Hindu. I will die something else. Something else than a Hindu. This is a major threat to Hinduism, which is poised to oppose the movement at every hand. God desires to touch those whom have been known as untouchables. When they hear the gospel story, they recognize that Jesus died as a Dalit outside the city and rejected by his own people. It is this message that touches the heart of a people who have experienced so much of the same rejection. Pray that God will accomplish all that is in his heart for these wonderful people. And pray for the day to come when many Dalits find themselves fully liberated by the wonderful love of Jesus. It, it is literally a, an apart, apartheid system that works when the known apartheid system has been dismantled. And although it's not strictly legal, it is very widely practiced, the caste system. And you will know this, Dorothy, of course, won't you? Yeah, yourself, yeah. Um, interestingly, um, the Life Association are, are bringing good news. Like this is the name of the charity that Simon runs, lifeassociation.org.uk. They've built schools, they've built boys' homes. This is a boys' home in, uh, in Mumbai um, that we visited. I took that picture on the right. And six of those seven boys in that room, they're having a bit of a romp when we went there. But they, uh, six of those seven were found on the train station when they were very little in Mumbai because the train station is the place where Kids will go if they're desperate because there's food, there's leftovers, there's rubbish, there's stuff you can look through. And can you imagine when some people who've been told you can't be touched, that even when the glass they drink from has to be thrown away, when they, they are told that actually God wants to touch you, God wants to touch your life, when they are told that this God, this Hindu God, who discards you because you're just not worth considering. He has discarded you. But the Christian message comes, and actually God discarded himself for you. That's, that's so transformational, so anti-everything they've, they've ever been told. It's astonishing, and thousands of Dalits are becoming Christians. And I believe that's why my mother's family, a couple of generations before, uh, became Christians. They became Methodists. So, 
Um, homes, schools, cottage industries that Simon and Julia support. Um, this is another of their websites. This is their kind of their commercial website, dalits.co.uk. You may have seen some of these goods on sale through Tradecraft or actually on the, we've seen, saw someone in a, saw some uh, one time in a service station on the M6, so they do get about spices, candles. And um, today, I'm just going to suggest that we could do something. We could make a donation. We're going to have a second plate collection in this last hymn. That's not very, it's not something that we do at Lynn Baptist Church, is it? But we can do it today. Jonathan's not back till next week. Okay, so don't tell him. So we can do that today. And uh, nobody, well, here's a donation we can just give to Simon and Julia, just spontaneously for the least of these, some of the very least of these in this world. Now, if you feel that's not for you, that's fine. Please don't be compelled. But I would say to you, from that passage of Scripture, you do something in the next couple of days. You give to something. It might be money. It might be a drink. It might be a meal for someone on the margins, maybe here or someone, another charity that you support. But do something, I know you probably give anyway. I think probably most, the vast majority of people do. But give something extra in the next couple of days. But if you can give to this, then please do. We're going to have a second plate collection during this uh, last hymn. Um, if you want to gift date it, you can just ping a note to Helen and say, I put in so many pounds, please gift date it. If you don't have money here today, but you do want to give something to this, send it by electronic transfer to Helen again, Mott Dalit, or put it in the collection next week, Mott Dalit. That's it. It's a way of transforming lives. It's a simple, spontaneous way, which I offer to you, to respond to the least of these. What, do, what can we do for the very least of these? And I uh, contacted Simon earlier in the week. It'd be great to get him here, actually, at some point, to give you a lot more information with a lot more passion than I could. He's been doing this, as I say, for 20 years. I've known him since 2003. I've been really impressed with his work since then. So, um, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to this last, into this last hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are interested in all of our lives, every part of it, as we've heard today. Not just what we believe, but what we do, and that right belief must result in right actions. And Lord, we thank you for your heart, for the very least of this world, uh, whether that's here, the marginalized people, even here in Lim or people hundreds and thousands of miles away who are the least, who are outcast out of society. You, your heart is for them. So, Lord, we want that heart for ourselves. It's not easy to bear so many, uh, so many to respond to so many worthy causes, but we pray, Lord, you would help us uh, to be discerning. You would help us to be your people, to be your eyes and ears and your hands in this world, bringing your love, your goodness, Lord, to those who are the very least. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.